Did apartheid make us fat? Is pub really traditional South African cuisine? Are we blissfully unaware of the fact that we eat goat poo? In this episode of the Superheroes podcast, I chat to Anna Trapido, epidemiologist, food anthropologist, and professional chef about South African cuisine's dirtiest secrets. We're live. Welcome to episode five of the Superheroes podcast. And today we have Anna Trapido, or Trapido, I don't know which, which, Trapido, uh, food anthropologist, chef, and PhD. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi. <laughs> now, I've been dying to ask how a chef gets a PhD, or was it how a PhD became a chef? Yeah, it's sort of that way. I think, you know, essentially a, a chronic inability to focus. Um, that my first degree is in anthropology, and um, I have a whole kind of other life as a person who knows about occupational lung disease in the Eastern Cape. So. I know why gold miners get sick, and mostly I know how to get them compensated. Um, so, wow. yeah, I'm an epidemiologist, the, the PhD, and, you know, for a long time, and then I went to chef school, and um, for a long time, I just thought those things don't connect, and, you know, I would, I remember once I was icing gingerbread men in the middle of the night, and for a company that were paying me almost nothing, and I thought, nobody cares, and I've got a and I realized that, of course, nobody cares because when you choose to ice gingerbread men, it's not relevant. But increasingly, the fact that I do know about working in the Eastern Cape and that, you know, I know stupid things like which side of the crawl women are allowed to sit on. And, you know, it, it has it has made a circle because increasingly what I do is sort of food anthropology. Um, so I use the food stuff and the social stuff. Um and yeah, it, it increasingly helps that I do know about rural communities and how to how to not cause offence. I suppose um, people are right. willing to tell you about their lunch if they're not pissed off by you. <laughs> cool. So the so the you know I mean I think I could ask you about that and talk for hours. But the the thing that struck me was a few years ago um, we actually met at. Uh, the, an event where you were promoting this book, Eating. Right. And it was off the back of me, um, not off, the, not in any way related, but I was out promoting Real Meal Revolution and obviously looking at ways to encourage people to eat healthier food. And one of the questions I've always had on my mind is how, how do we get people to eat more real food, um, but in a financially viable way and, you know, in a cost effective way. And I saw this book come along and it was it just like blew my mind because it was using like local foods. And what I didn't realize is how much food had actually changed in South Africa over the time. And could you just tell us a little bit about pre-colonization South African cuisine? Right. I mean, I think that when one looks at South African food, um, you know, you, you, 
don't want to sort of just endlessly be that person that drones on about colonialism and apartheid. And, but actually, you can't discuss food without discussing land. And, you know, land in a South African context is so complicated. And there's such a story of dispossession that results in poverty. And, you know, that it, it very substantially changes the, you know, obviously people's economic status, but also their ability to access certain ingredients. Um, so if you look at what people, so if you want to know about the South African diet, whatever that means, and food is so, you know, it's, it's a constantly moving target and it should be, all food all over the world is. But if you look at pre-colonial or early colonial um, accounts of what indigenous South Africans were eating, there are all sorts of missionaries, for instance, who um, talk about food in KwaZulu-Natal, and they describe, you know, 15 different kinds of sorghum that you use each one for a different thing. Um, so some of them are for beer, some of them are for more solid foods, because, again, that distinction between, you know, what is a food and what is a drink is, is quite a... A sort of Eurocentric one that in Southern African culture, you know, these things exist on much more of a continuum. So, what is a thin porridge and what is a beer um, is a much more kind of so that beers are thought of as food, you know, there isn't a separate category, and beers are thought of as nutritious, as you know, indeed they are, you know, it's just fermented sorghum most of the time, so right. it's enormously good for you. Um, so there's a wide range of all sorts of both indigenous ancient grains, so sorghum, millet, those sorts of things. Um, and so within that, there are five different kinds of millet and five different kinds of sorghum, etc. Um, and then there's a very wide range of things that, again, in in English tend to get classified, you know, they, they get described as spinach. Boom. And, yes. you know, they are actually 50 different kinds of wild leafy greens, um, each of which you use in a slightly different way. Um, so, for instance, there are certain um, wild leafy greens that are quite peppery. So you wouldn't ever use them entirely on their own. So you would use, you know, two thirds, the sort of milder huave um, is, for instance, an example of that. And then you would use one third of the more kind of intense peppery thing. Um, so that you're creating flavor with those. Um, and then, I mean, it depends where you are in South Africa, you know, because food is so terroir specific. So what's true for Limpopo is not true for KwaZulu-Natal, for instance, that, um, that Natal is just such... It's cattle country. It's if, if God created a place that was perfect for cattle, um, he kind of would have thought of, of Natal. Um, so in that context, there's lots of dairy and lots of fermented dairy. And um, so that that kind of soured milk, which again exists in a range of gradations. If Eskimos have yeah. lots of words for snow, Southern Africans have lots of different words for, you know, how much curd to how much whey. Um, and I mean, at 
at the one end, what you've got is, um, you know, drained curds. So a masi that's then been drained, so the whey is gone. And those curds are essentially South Africa's fresh cheese. You know, they're ricotta. Um, they're, um, that once you go into places like Limpopo, and especially the further north you go, you know, I mean, these things are so subjective, but certainly for me, the really just kind of drop dead fantastic the way you get to certain parts of Italy and you think, God, these people can cook. The mm. really drop dead, dead fantastic food is in Venda, um, wow. where there are lots of nuts. So marula nuts, for instance, you, you know, you've got the marula fruit and then inside the fruit is um, a hard pip. And if you hit that in a very skilled way, it will open up and inside are marula nuts. Yeah. Which are, they taste like pine nuts, you know, in, I mean, they taste like themselves, but to the extent that they taste like something else, they are rich and creamy and generous. And so suddenly, essentially what people make in, in Venda is almost a bit like pesto, you know, that everything has got a kind of rich nut base, whether that be ground nuts or more recently peanuts or these marula nuts. Um, so that you've got this kind of creamy mouthfeel that just sort of says, I love you, you know, that that's a really rich, generous um, sort of creaminess. So, yeah, I think that in general, there are, you know, this is a, a country with vast biodiversity, so the food is very regionally specific. Um, but what it isn't is the way that modern urban black South African food is often sort of stereotyped as being very monocrop. Um, mm. And um, so it's very maize heavy, um, it's perceived as being very oil heavy, and that the, the vegetables used are quite limited. So spinach, potatoes, tomatoes. Um, yes. And actually, I don't think that that's necessarily true. If you look at people's shopping, if you're at Checkers, and you watch quite poor people shopping going through and you think, well, actually, you know, there's such a sort of middle class conspiracy that says that, like, poor people eat badly. And, you know, here I am with all this kind of processed shit in my trolley. And here's this person who's got spinach and tomatoes and onions and a bit of fish and, you know, some offal. And... Yeah. Who am I to be assuming that because I've read the fancy food magazine that I am eating better, that a lot of the time that's not true at all. But, mm. you know, undoubtedly what happens with apartheid is people are driven off land and the less access you have to land, the less access you have to deciding what gets grown apart from anything else. Um, yeah. So suddenly the crops that suit you know, industrial farming, um, rather than things that people have a, a preference for that's about culture or, you know, personal preferences or whatever. Mm. Um, so it kind of, in the way that, you know, modernization and industrialization everywhere um, sort of damages uh, the individuality of particular cultural experiences. Um, this is like a very extreme uh, version of that. Right. You know, it is a, it is a kind of um, transition into modernity. It's just a very traumatic one. Yeah, and I mean that's fascinating. I had no idea that we had like um, 
you know, region specific cuisine. And I'm, I mean, it would make perfect sense, but it's, you know, no one knows that. Well, very few people it's actually know that. that. You and me, it's so delicious. It's like kind of hitting Tuscany. You just think, God, you know, this is a region of people in which people can seriously cook, even people who cook badly cook well. You know that way that like well, Ethiopian food, for instance, you think there's, there's no such thing as bad Ethiopian food. There's some Ethiopian food better than others. Um, yes. You know, that the, the kind of core flavor components are so good um, and so generous that it almost feels a bit, um, in that same way that, that certain sorts of Congolese food feels, it's almost a bit obscene, you know, that it feels a bit sort of overly sexy. You know, you think <laughs> there are messages here that are about love and passion and sex and that are, there's a kind of opulence that even people who are very poor can generate because there's this kind of nut base essentially, which makes for such a kind of rich fatty base. Wow. So, yeah, and so, we must go to the yeah, vendor. No, yeah. it's on the list of officially as of today. No, fantastic. <laughs> you would not believe how delicious vendor is. That's awesome. So, you know, so if I understand what you're saying, um, as, as sort of the, well, as sort of cultures were marginalized, the Western diet sort of took over. Um, and you were referring to to corn and, and wheat in particular, just mm -hmm. industrialized crops. And that put, and so that's now made, because you mentioned in the in the book, and I don't know whether it was you or Paul talking about it, but you were speaking about how now the that it's become in, in African culture almost um, seen as poor to be eating the old traditional the real traditional foods so saying eating foods like sorghum and millet are perhaps seen as less fancy than eating mm. uh, white foods and i mean white like literally uh, white oh, colored grains yeah overly processed yeah 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 and look i mean again that's a phenomenon that you get all over the world is that um people again that modernity comes with a whole lot of you know, part of it is, you know, kind of media, it's very easy to blame media, but, you know, part of it's that, you know, it's just pushed everywhere. Part of it's, you know, that it's, that there are, I mean, for instance, in, in terms of maize, it's very clear that, um, you know, the way maize arrives in Southern Africa is, you know, I mean, it's like the fact that we love it is like a form of culinary Stockholm syndrome, you know, that it, it arrives with the slave trade. So, you know, maize comes, all maize comes from the Americas, that it yeah. arrives, you know, along the east coast of Southern Africa with Portuguese slave traders, that, you know, initially there's quite a lot of hostility to maize and suspicion because it's very water intensive relative to just... If you can hear that noise, that that's a, we have a puppy in our house who's making a terrible noise, but she'll stop. Um, that's, there you see, she's, okay. That, so maize arrives in Southern Africa, that it's much more water intensive. And we are, we've always been a water scarce region, you know, that, that that's not a recent phenomenon. It might be getting worse, but it's never, we've never been kind of um, plentiful in matters water. That. You know, that as it, as it gets in, the, the reason that it becomes successful is that maize grows quite quickly. Um, and, you know, as Shaka's armies begin to move through southern Africa, 
you need a crop that you can, and maize you can, you can harvest in various stages. You know, you can eat it green as a mealy crop, or you can have it as, as grain later on. Um, and so you need a crop that you can grab from the fields and run into the mountains with. So, um, except that part of the reason that Shaka's armies are moving out into other people's territories um, is to do with the fact that the maize itself is so water intensive that you need more land than you needed before. So it's a vicious circle. Um, but so all over, you see the way that the, in, the, in the Free State and in Pumalanga and those sorts of regions, um, you see maize following the kind of Mufikane uh, Zulu army um, infiltration into other parts of the country. That, um, yeah, that, that uh, then, but initially, you know, maize is a whole range of different heritage mazes, and you can see exactly which slave ships came and from which part of the Americas they came by tracing the genetics of the maize. So those heritage mazes that you see that are kind of multicolored and so pretty, yes. that they get replaced in the 1920s because the demands of the mining industry are such that they want a very standardized um, food in the hostels. So they put a lot of money into developing a single kind of um, very productive, very white maize, which people then, you know, mine workers then come home, um, you know, so they're on these um, short-term contracts and they go home between them, bringing these new tastes with them. And, you know, if you've had a terrible time on the mines, you don't want to tell your family that when you get home. You want to tell mm. them that actually you're okay and you've brought money and you've brought prestige and all of these things. So there's this kind of sense that this maze that I'm bringing back from the mines is um, a gift superior to any of these heritage mazes that people are already growing. So the which were much more nutritious and um, yeah. So. You know, there are waves of sort of maize um, damage um, that happen in, in Southern Africa. But gradually what they do is they replace almost entirely and more in some areas than others, but they replace the indigenous sorghums and millets, um, right. which in some ways, you know, millet especially requires an awful lot of you know, bird scaring for one thing, because birds think millet is fabulous. That's why, you know, at the moment that practically the only place you can buy the indigenous millet is if you go to the pet food aisle and you go to what's marked as canary food. There, in those bags, is the indigenous millet. But I buy it and cook with it all the time. But you have to, like, be buying canary food. Sometimes it's labeled budgie food as well. And you will find the indigenous millet. If you go to the health food shops, you will find at vast expense imported yes. millets. Um, that, yeah, I mean, that all the carbon mile issues and mm, mm, mm. don't taste as nice as far as I'm concerned. But um, so those gradually get replaced. But those grains, so what cereals, are, you know, they are low GI, they are gluten free, they yeah. are all of these fantastic things. Um, I mean, one of the things that makes me really sad is that sorghum, which is really so delicious, it's a great grain of Southern Africa. You can do everything with it. You can bake yeah. with it, you can brew with it, you can make 
um, sort of risotto-like things. You can make porridges, you can ferment with it, etc. That sorghum is not on our VAT-exempted list, but mealy meal is. And that just seems to me like an absolute crime against heritage. If you're wanting to encourage people to eat things that are both good for them in terms of their nutritional stages, but also just in terms of their kind of heritage and cultural experience and, and just in terms of their palate, because God knows sorghum tastes so much better. If you are wanting to encourage people to do that, make it cheap enough for them to do so. You know, the fact that it's low GI and it will keep you full for longer is not the way you're making those decisions in the supermarket of your point. Mm. You know, that you're making the decision on the immediate price implications of this bag of five kgs mm. versus that bag. So it just seems you don't even have to take maize meal off that list. If you would just put sorghum on the VAT exempted list, that would make mm. such a difference to the way people could engage with it. Yeah, I, I mean, the sorghum has been sort of on my mind for a while and um, I read some article, I, don't, I won't name the, the food giant, but they kind of, they obviously got pressure from someone to do research. And they said, yes, we've put at the total of 500,000 Rand into testing the viability of sorghum. And you're like, you know, for like a multi-billion <laughs> Rand company, 500,000 Rand is like a cheek. That's actually just rude. So, so now what, what impact do you think this has had on, on health over well, however many years. Viability, just before we move off viability. Yeah, sure. You know, in a water scarce environment, something that is so much more drought resistant that mm. you have to look at the knock-on consequences. You can't just look at, you know, while we irrigate our mealy meal um, so extensively, well, it's cheaper to make mealy meal. Well, is it really cheaper and what, is, what are the long-term social consequences? Mm. Um, of that and all the short-term nutritional consequences you know are those costs ending up in the public health system you know it's all very well if the if big industry is making more money if we're more viable because we sell mealy meal um, but, <laughs> you know the rest of us our tax money is paying for the consequences of all the diabetes and high blood pressure and all of that that's um, mm. so I think that you know those sums can be done in multiple ways um, yeah well and that's what i what i liked so much about about eating was that it's this i mean it seems as though if everything existed here before sort of mass scale agriculture that it's probably it grows more naturally or it's probably more viable to grow it if it was grown without an industry backing it it seems to be healthier um and for some reason it's just sort of fallen off the map but but what eating did was combine it made it look delicious and stylish and sort of it's obviously beautifully written and uh and and it made health sense and financial sense now just to put the disclaimer in i know like a lot of people who watch this know me from the low carb space and i know that like you know not everyone's married to the low carb um ideology but what you did say was that the um the white grains or highly processed grains had an impact on the health. So what is your stance on, you know, low GI, high fiber grains versus the, the white foods? Like how strongly do you think that impacted the diabetes epidemic versus, you know, fat and sugar? Oh, I think it's almost entirely responsible for it. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, I start 
as an anthropologist and then I'm a chef that mm. um, my co-author in Po Chukuru is, is a dietitian, so she comes from a more medical perspective. But in terms of, so my interests are always primarily, does it taste good? Um, is it filling a social role that is adding to the kind of beauty and complexity of being a human? Um, and then I look at health. So, and I know that that's, um, that's probably not um, very kind of good for the universe, but that's sort of just the way the brain works. But so, but I think that, you know, that in the process of destroying Southern African food culture and um, making things taste much less good, we have also very dramatically impacted on health. That if you think of something as simple, for instance, as sampan beans, if you have that in the Eastern Cape, in rural Transkei, that what people will do is they will either, you know, they've got cattle, so either there will be a great lump of butter or there will be a great lump of, you know, schmaltz, essentially, you know, chicken fat. Yeah. Um, that's put in at the end and mixed in, and that is delicious. If you are in a township and what people do is put a great lump of rama in the top, suddenly it's not nice at all in terms of, you know, the, the way, you know, these are all subjective things, but, you know, that, that it seems to me that a lot of what you're saying about um, health you know, works just as well as this is this is good for culture and it's good for taste. Mm. Um, and all of those are moving targets. Uh, yeah. All of them are completely subjective. And the interesting thing about taste buds is that they tend to like what they know. Yeah. So that, for instance, all little children initially that I've ever seen um, reject the McDonald's and play with the toy. Um, you know, they don't actually like the taste of the burger, um, that you're left as the mummy thinking, oh, I'll eat it, because, you know, it's here at favorite. All they really want yeah. is the toy. But if you go on doing that, by the time they are three or four, they will reject other food in favor of McDonald's because that's what their mouths know, that we mm. all, the concept of an acquired taste, almost everything's an acquired taste. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as a parent, one of the things you can do is teach your children to like the taste of knickknacks and drama, or you can teach them to like the taste of fermented sorghum, um, that those are about the ways in which you know, your child experiences food. Um, so, yeah, that I think that on the whole, what's good for taste and what's good for culture um, and what's good for, you know, the economy in a broader sense rather than what's good for a particular multinational tends yes. to be what's good for people's, you know, physiology as well. I have to say I strongly agree. So let's let's talk about eating for a bit. So, um I mean, it sounds weird that I, because I wanted to interview you or do something like, I think it was like three years ago at uh, the Kingsmead Book Fair and then never got it together. But I think this is like the, un, and, and I think you, you did win an award or two, but this is like the unsung hero of the, of the cooking 
the cookbook industry. So it's sweet of you. It really, I, like, I, I promise you, if you look back on my Instagram post, which and I hardly ever post, I took a photo of this book and I was like, this is the next big thing. <laughs> I was like, this is going to change the... the like it. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It's, I mean, essentially, you know, we like it. We're glad we wrote it anyway. We learned lots and... Uh, we met lots of kind of fantastic, interesting people and tasted lots of delicious food. Um, you know, that, that they can't do it into a second edition because, you know, nobody wants to buy it. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know. Go, go and buy it now. Buy it. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you because I think it's a lovely book and I think that it raises interesting debates. Um, I think that um, we might do certain things differently if we did it again um, mm. and we'd have a clearer idea about who we were talking to um, that we thought we were talking to um, upper middle class black women um, right. and that actually what's been interesting is how many white male vegans have liked it for instance and you know that and how many in general, quite a lot of African men have also been much more enthusiastic than their wives. And I think partly, you know, women will often say, that food takes long. And mm. you, know, you want that food, you cook it yourself. You know, mm. I'm an accountant in an Audi. I'm, I'm not yeah. cooking that food. You, you want that, you do it yourself. And so you get, you have these earnest conversations with sort of young black men who are trying to entice their wives into being interested in a book. And that, you know, their wives would much rather be, you know, looking at books on Tuscany. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, that, that what we were trying to do is say that this food doesn't have to take long, that you don't have to be, you know, that young women, you know, that kind of way that, that you know, from the outside, the way that Marcotis are treated um, as sort of unpaid domestic labor and that they are, the assumption is they have endless time on their hands to be stirring pots and collecting firewood and water and all of those things, that there is a, a, a perception amongst quite a lot of kind of young bourgeois African women that this is the food of oppression in a way, that, that, yeah. that it's the food of kind of gender um, discrimination and youth discrimination. But... You know, what we were trying to say was, you know, get a pressure cooker. Um, recognize that, you know, you are a person who has a domestic worker in your house anyway, who has all these skills, who is at home all day anyway. Mm. Um, that, you know, there are a range of ways of doing this with and still being the girl with the Audi um, and the kind of smart job. Um, so, yeah, that, but I, I think that we all... We need to recognize that all the things that people rush after because they think that they're fashionable, um, that they've read in smart magazines, um, that they all exist within Southern African traditional food culture. So, you know, the idea that, you know, organic is a new thing or that, you know, the, this idea that somehow, you know, foraging was invented by, you know, white male chefs in Cape Town, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> to it, you know, it's like, congratulations, you kind of worked out how to look for a mushroom. Well, you know, every herd boy in the trans guy does that, um, yeah. that, um, the notions of, of low GI, um, ancient grains, fermenting, you know, 
that Southern Africa is one of the great fermenting cultures of the world. Um, yeah, I didn't even know that. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because you know it's sorghum beer and, and Damas and all that, but you don't think that we actually have a place in the in the global... Africans ferment yeah. everything. You know, that, that um, and at a whole range of different grades and they have a whole series of, you know, this is for this sort of person, this is for that sort of person, this you can have after you've had a baby, this one is for young men coming out of initiation, that, you know, that, that, that the, the kind of subtleties within the ways in which people relate to fermentation are so beautiful and complex and full of kind of symbolism and, and taste great. Um, and you only have to look at, I mean, even things like prisoners on Robben Island who were endlessly attempting to create ferment secretly under their beds and, you know, that, that Walter Sisulu was always keeping some of his porridge aside and trying to make it ferment under the bed and getting caught and sent into solitary confinement. You know, fermenting is so central to people's sense of who they are um, that it's like... I ferment, therefore I am, uh, in terms wow. of Southern African indigenous traditional culture. Um, that if you had to close your eyes and be blindfolded and be given a spoonful of food and say, what do you taste? The way you taste Southern Africa, I think, is in that kind of soured taste. Um, so, yeah, that we are so full of kind of fashionable, um, glamorous things that we imagine, you know, the, the amount of, of money that is spent on quinoa, my supermarket has three colors of quinoa in two yes. different sections of the supermarket. It's in the health section and it's in the grain section. The only place I can buy the indigenous millet is in the budgie food section. You know, <laughs> what's that about? You know, that, that they have yeah. so many of the same qualities without the carbon mile factor. Um, Absolutely. So, can we just, it is about learning to love yourself. And in a way, if you mm. look at Australian cuisine, the point at which that really kind of flourishes is where they, they suddenly, Australian chefs start engaging with where they are in the world and the terroir, and they start liking themselves. Um, and obviously, Australia's got all sorts of complicated issues around race and land and dispossession and and that's totally. not a, uh, you know, a, that's a whole other struggle. And, and But there is a sense that once you think, hey, we're great, and Australians do nothing but tell you how fabulous they are, and good for them, yeah. you know, that um, once you start believing that, then you can start being creative with your own core flavors. Um, mm. Until then, you're just copying, you know, that you're a minor bird, and minor birds mm. can be enormously clever, but it is just yeah. a form of mimicry, isn't it? They don't understand yeah, I, what they're saying, the minor birds. No. The, I mean, it's interesting you say that because there's, you know, I remember some people moaning about the top chefs being, you know, the top 10 chefs in South Africa often being, you know, more foreigners you know having more foreigners in the top 10 than than not but i don't want to go into that uh, <laughs> i've got a theory and i want to try my theory out on you because i think okay, like laugh me yeah. else, which is that if you want to bring really good uh foreign trained chefs to south africa what you do is you send afrikaans girls to chef school 
because they finish chef school in Stellenbosch and they go to London where they meet a Frenchman and Afrikaans girls come home. You send an English speaking girl to, to London, she never comes home. She's just there. in this exchange. But if you send Afrikaans girls, they don't live without their mothers. So they come home and they bring the Frenchman with you. And if you look at all of those people, Luke Dale, Robert, Frank Dangereux, all of them, when you start picking up their bread, what they have is they have an Afrikaans wife. That's mind blowing. So, you want to bring <laughs> kind of world-class international chefs to South Africa, you send off Cards Girls to London. Yeah. <laughs> they then probably never use again, but they yeah. they are a great recruiter. That's a fantastic that idea. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I want to talk about brand South Africa for a bit. I read um, an incredibly long article that you wrote on, I mean, it, I think it was in 2017 or, or 18, but it was brilliant. And you wrote about how um, the, you know, how France and even England to an extent have strengthened their food their, their, their food brand with, mm -hmm. I think it's called geographic indication. On a lot of the denomination, like yeah, yeah. it's what the French do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 South Africa only has three products. Mm. And what did you say? I, I keep saying indication, but you said it's um. It's called geographical denomination. Denomination. That's what you describe that in the kind of EU regulations. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, it simply means you can't call champagne champagne unless it comes from Champagne. Um, right. You know that, that it's about saying regional foods need to be protected so that you know that Karoo lamb for instance is a classic so we all know what that means you know that it kind right. up something much bigger than the kind of chemical components in a in a bit of lamb um but there's you know that there's brand value in that that people will preferentially pick it so mm. if you are allowed to just call anything Karoo lamb um, and the classic one, I think, in Southern Africa is, is Piri Piri, um, which is the birthright of the people of Mozambique. And yet yes. is just, you know, that phrase is not only misspelled all over the world, so we spell it with an E rather than an I, but yes. you know that, that it's getting less and less clear in people's minds that that is the creation of this astonishing fusion culture in Mozambique, you know, and that, that the amount of money that could be generated for Mozambique in all sorts of ways, in tourism, you know, if you think about the way that Peru kind of just changed, you know, Lima used to be that place people only went to if they wanted to get kidnapped, and now you go there because <laughs> they've got all these top restaurants in the top 100, you know, that yeah. um, if you could really market Mozambique to the world as the birthplace of Piri Piri, you know, the tourism opportunities in that. And, and, and then just saying, actually, guys, you can't call it Piri Piri unless it is, you know, there's yeah. a number of weird things that get classified as that, that it's just insulting, you know, that, that the French won't let you do it to their great things. So why yeah. would Southern Africans, you know, put up with that? And, and most people think that Piri Piri is Portuguese. I mean, I know Mozambique's Portuguese, but mo like if you learnt of Piri Piri through Nando's, uh, Nando's doesn't say we're Mozambican chicken. They say they're you know, Portuguese. They have, they have gotten better. better. They, okay. they used to do that taste of Portugal thing. And they are beginning to quite substantially engage with their African heritage. Um, and I mean, I think that... In the, and Piri Piri is a whole other 
conversation. But you know that, that Africans have been making hot sauces long before there were chilies in Africa. You know that chilies are again they come with slave ships from the Americas. Um, and different chilies come to different parts of Africa in various different ways. But very quickly, you know, chilies will crossbreed very easily. So you get these land race chilies that are entirely African in origin, you know, that they don't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, and the, again, it's about terroir. It's about the soil and the sun and the way the water works and all of that. So, um, you know, so you have these very unique tastes that long before there were chilies, there were hot sauces because there are other ways of making that burny thing in your mouth. And if you read, like, for instance, 14th century Arab um, accounts, traveler accounts, and earlier even, um, you know, they, they talk about all these hot sauces all the way down, you know, Somalia. And you know that, that Mozambique is a, is a great trade kind of center from very early on. So from about the 11th century, you know, that that's a very, that's an international center from the spice trade, you know, that it's a way yeah. that Europeans access, because Arabs won't tell where they're getting quite a lot of the spice. They say, no, they come from paradise or they come from this like, there's a giant um, bird that brings down yeah. the um, the cinnamon, and they've got all these stories to keep people from getting at them. So you have to buy them from them. But you know the, the ports in Mozambique are are there, and those that Swahili coastline in general, yeah. very international from very early on, and you know a range of, for instance, grains of paradise, which is an indigenous African spice. You find it, it's in the records at the Vatican in the 14th century being purchased, you know, that, that um, you know, that Africa is much more international than the last 500 years would have one believe, you know, that, that um, so, yeah, geographical denominations, essentially, it's about protecting culinary birthrights. And right. other countries have done that very successfully. And mm. I think that you know, Southern Africa should be analyzing that, not because we're somehow, you know, nice people. This is a, there are very direct knock-on economic consequences. Mm. Um, and, you know, other people are making money off the back of these kind of great kind of flavor um, repertoires. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, Argentina boomed in the, I think it was the 20s or 30s when um, refrigeration became, you know, more accessible because they have amazing beef. And Argentinian beef to this day is still a brand, even though I'm, I'm not sure it's, you know, I was thinking like if you were saying um, Natal, you could get like Zulu beef or something and that could be an insane brand that's you know truly South African. but are there any products so we've got we i, I read you you said we have argon oil rooibos and then karoo lamb and that's and that's argon it oil is north african and the okay. argon oil industry is interesting in that they were the first group of people to to get a you know they've actually got an appellation controle so they they are registered within the french system prior to the eu system hmm. and Argon oil is interesting because it's a it's a curious it's a nut almost like a marula nut and I think a marula nut is one of the kind of classic that's a a very obvious you know northern Limpopo um, 
ter territory specific ingredient. Um, but argan oil has to pass traditionally through them. I mean, they now do it with a machine and chemicals, but has to pass through the belly of a goat. So the thing is, is that only the very poorest people and specifically the very poorest women in Isuria, which is the region where you get argan oil from, um, were prepared to work with argan oil because you have to work with goat poo. Um, so, in fact, the women's cooperatives in Assyria have been enormously socially um, kind of uplifting because these are groups of women who produce this beautiful, delicious ingredient that is highly sought after in um, sort of international fine dining situations, um, who were the poorest of the poor, um, who have you know, mobilized to get themselves um, an Appalachian controle. So you cannot make argan oil anywhere but in Assyria. You have to call it something else if you use, you, you can grow argan nuts in other places. But so they now have the monopoly on real argan oil. Um, so. Um, and that's not and coming it, through the goat. Hey? That's, that's. <laughs> Well, ex, some of it still comes through the goat, and, and you know, purists will tell you that the best stuff comes through the goat. Um, but essentially what the goat is, it's the goat's digestive system. So if you can find some other way of getting into the nut. Um, right. And, you know, like in Vendor, they, they, they just hit the, um, the marilla nuts in a very skilled way um, that I had to go and I was rubbish because you crush the nut if you're not careful so opening them up. But, yeah, so... Um, in South Africa, the two that are, you know, that rooibos and karoo lamb are the ones that have a, a an official um, denomination already, um, which means you cannot grow rooibos in California and yeah. call it rooibos. You have to call it something else. Um, that there are, you know, other great Southern African products that could be um, kind of mobilized in that way. Um, and I think that there's both kind of pride and there's direct economic consequences. And often there's direct economic consequences for rural communities and often mm. for older women in rural communities who still have the skills to process those things. That, for instance, in Venda, um, you know, the Marula nut thing is now... There's all sorts of people who um, want to buy marula nuts at smart hipster markets in Joburg and that kind of thing. Mm. So those ladies are now earning decent amounts of money from processing the marula nuts. And what they say, those older women, is that now that there is money uh, involved, then, you know, obviously nobody wants to be involved with something that's like got no prestige and no financial benefits attached to it. But younger people in those communities are now interested in a way that before they were quite dismissive. Um, right. So, you know, you can uplift the most vulnerable um, because they are often the people that have the traditional skills. Um Totally. So it can it's it's terrific on all sorts of levels. Yeah, I mean, so so you know, I mean, quick one, but so sorghum, by the sounds of things, if it does come from Southern Africa, it could fit into that category. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that that sorghum 
is found across broader Southern Africa, as is millet. So you couldn't pin it down in the way that you can pin down cheddar cheese, for instance. Right. You know, cheddar is a very specific district. But you could absolutely, um, you know, you could, there are varieties that are specific to certain areas. Um, so there are, are heritage varieties, and you could certainly pin those down. Um, and um, there are processed products as well that you could, um, you know, say that, that like piri piri, for instance, that, that that's none of those ingredients are specifically indigenous to the region, but the, you know, the human ingenuity that created this beautiful combination that happened in Africa. Mm. Um, mm. And I mean, you were talking about the way that, um, you know, South Africans especially say, oh, I love Portuguese food. And when you mm. ask them what they love, they say they like piri-piri chicken. And you think, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, in Mozambique, in Portugal, people would understand that as food of the diaspora, you know, that they understand yeah. that it's part of the Portuguese kind of colonial experience, but that mm. it's not Portuguese food. People go to, South Africans go to Portugal, always come back desperately disappointed, you know. <laughs> like I didn't get my peri-peri chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, that, you know, that in, in Mozambique, for instance, um, you know, politely, piri piri chicken is referred to as frango africana, and actually on the street it's referred to as frango cafriol, uh, which is a very pejorative word for Africans. But you know that that the, the understanding in everybody's head is that that is an African creation. You know that it's wow. it's a yeah. fusion of what you when you've got. Um, Africans and uh, Arabs and Portuguese people in one space, you know, mm. that, that they, there's a melding that happens there um, and that that creates these entirely new tastes and that that's what Piri Piri is, for instance. So, that is Frango Africana. Frango Africana. And that's a goodie. We should... That's the nice I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, the real yeah. version is what people actually call it. And mm. the chili, if you want to get even ruder, is look at what piri piri sakana actually means. Because, um, yeah, that, that, that you can't make piri piri with just any chili. You know, that, that yeah. again, that's a thing that, like, you know, where people make, they say it's piri piri. It's not piri piri unless it's made with a specific chili. Um, wow. Which only has a rude name. Okay. Um, you can look it up. So, you know, looking to the future, um, and this is the last question, by the way. I, I didn't actually realize when I asked you to join me that we would be doing this on a public holiday. So <laughs> I appreciate you joining me. Um, I just wish I'd sort of like, I was fucking around making muffins and yeah. That's all good. Focused. But, no, it's, uh, really, don't worry about it. So where, where do you see, I mean, what is your wish for food in, in South Africa? How would you like to see a change over the next 10, 15 years? Well, look, in the first instance, I think we just have to acknowledge that, you know, even before COVID-19, we were in a, you know, an economic crisis that, that's caused serious hunger um, and an ecological crisis that's resulting in, you know, other sorts of um, deprivation that will cause hunger. So partly, I think we need to engage with how are we going to 
ensure that people are are fed in a way that feeds every part of them um that you know we can't have children going to school hungry that we can't have teenagers with high blood pressure because they just are eating too many spatulas and that's a feature of township boys because girls at least want to be thin so they eat slightly better but township boys the rates of kind of soaring blood pressure to the extent that they're actually like in kidney failure um is terrifyingly high in teenage boys you know we're not talking old men um wow. that so those kinds of issues um we need to to deal with that and i don't see why beautiful tastes and like really exciting creativity have to be separated from that that if you say that um engaging with hunger means you have to eat boring food and it has to be gray and it has to be virtuous but it it can't taste delicious then you're missing the point that humanity is about saying food is a delicious creative thing and that is that is the one thing that all humans do they they learn how to make a fire very early on and they use that to do all these beautiful things so i think that we want to make better connections between um food politics and food creativity such that we've got chefs who are able to make links with rural communities about indigenous ingredients and you know those things are all completely possible and it makes for better food at every level you know that that it will make for better food in smart restaurants on the you know top 10 lists um if people are are really engaging with what are the fantastic flavors that exist in this space but that also makes for better economics on a broader level and it's more inclusive um and so yeah that would be my hope um and you know who knows that in a crisis quite often what happens is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer um so then <laughs> then you get a whole other thing happening um but yeah that fantasy um hope is is that we somehow create linkages that allow for everybody to thrive and for everything to be more delicious well i hope i hope that comes true and and on that note uh, i'll let you go <laughs> to enjoy the rest of your 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 day off this is youth day for anyone watching in the future and and yeah thank you so much for joining me uh, that was mind blowing pretty much everything you said blew my mind and uh, and oh. And and look I'm I've been promoting your book which I I think you may have even forgotten about but for those of you who want to read it it's eating but what else where else can people get you to uh, follow you um you know read more of your stuff You know I have a an Instagram account that is actually I see you've got at @tropedo anna which is actually not me that that's a strange Lithuanian cousin um uh, I am something called at @tropedo territory Trapedo um, territory. So I actually had yeah. you wrong the whole time. So Trapedo territory like is is I think a cousin in Lithuania. Um uh, who's also called Anna Trapedo, but it's not her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so no one yeah. follow that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not very sort of internet savvy, but um I I do that and then I just sort of I'm 
I've got a column in the Daily Maverick. I do a lot of stuff for City Press that, um, you know, and Poe and I are sort of pottering around with with things, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> we will well, I'm just going to say what, yeah, I'm just going to call it Watch the Space. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, and to those of you watching, please like and share. Let every South African hear this because it's important. Have a rad day, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to join the Supper Heroes community, please get onto Facebook and join the Facebook group. That is the Supper Heroes Facebook group. For more information on me, follow me on Facebook, the John o. Proudfoot. Follow me on Instagram at John o. Proudfoot. Check out my website, www.johnoproudfoot.com. And if you're interested in taking my online keto course or getting online keto coaching, check out realmealrevolution.com. Please follow and download. We're out to change the world and you can be a part of it. See you next week.